Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Quinn Robbins graduated from Assiniboine Community College in 2017 after completing his agribusiness diploma in Brandon, Manitoba. He worked at Richardson Pioneer in Shoal Lake, Manitoba from May 2017 to May 22 as a location assist working on the grain operation as well as crop input operations. His duties include grain grading, trading seed, handling canola seed, blending fertilizer, working in the chemical shed, and handling office paperwork. Quinn was a 4-H member for 14 years and got to hold many positions in the club, such as reporter, secretary, vice president, and president. Quinn had the honor to be awarded travel opportunities through 4-H and traveled to the 4-H Citizenship Seminar in Charlottetown, PEI, in April of 2014, the 4-H Canada Members Forum in Toronto, Ontario, November of 2014, and the 4-H National U.S. Conference in Washington, D.C. in April of 2016. Quinn has been on the family farm since he was a young age, working with livestock. Together with his dad, Clayton, they run a commercial beef production farm. But growing up, they had sheep as well in their grazing system. Quinn started buying into the farm and sharing more of the percentage of the land in 2016. Quinn currently works at Ducks Unlimited Canada and has a passion to help create a diverse environment with thriving forages and wetlands going forward in the egg industry. Clayton Robbins operates a mixed family farm in Rivers, Manitoba, with a primary focus on beef production at the present time, which includes cow-calf, backgrounding, and custom grazing. Sheep production was included for about 30 years until 2009. Clayton graduated from the University of Manitoba in 1989 with a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture. He spent over 20 years with Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada Research Branch in Brandon studying beef and forage production which included extending the grazing season, forage-based finishing, greenhouse gas mitigation, modeling, cultivar development, and energetic efficiencies. Through this, he has co-authored a number of scientific papers. Clayton spent several years working on egg industry development as a member of numerous boards and committees, including terms as chair. Through coaching sport, volunteer time, and board positions with egg in the classroom, Provincial Exhibition of Manitoba, and other such youth education programs, Youth development has been and continues to be an important part of his private life. Clayton was the executive director of Manitoba 4-H Council for seven years. 
He was awarded one of the 2013 Nuffield Canada Scholarships touring the world to study the potential for energy-dense forages in the Canadian beef production model, and has since delivered presentations on the concept in eight different countries. He served as an officer director for three terms on the executive of the Canadian Society of Animal Science, helping to organize four international academic conferences. Leighton is currently employed with Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, working to support research and extension projects. Today, I have the opportunity to interview Clayton and Quinn Robbins. Welcome to the podcast today, Clayton and Quinn. Thank you. To start us off, I have some questions for each of you so our listeners can get an idea of who you are and what your agricultural background looks like. Clayton, we'll start with you. Can you please share a bit about your history and background, especially in regards to your interest in agriculture? Uh, well, I'm just turned 55 years old and been basically farming as soon as I could walk and follow dad around and, and grand help grandpa when I was a young guy. I was uh, very fortunate that I had a, a long career with Ag Canada that allowed me to learn a few things there that we brought back to the farm and then allowed me to learn some things in the farm that I took back to work to incorporate into some research projects and had a lot of travel there opportunities and, and as well to uh, to learn more at different meetings and stuff. That really kind of opened my eyes quite a bit to a different way of doing things uh, from what, you know, we'd done on the farm traditionally. And it kind of got me on a pretty good path with a few other opportunities and that down the road to make some changes, big changes into how we uh, managed our farm here in the cattle herd, basically. Can you share a little bit about your cattle herd, the timing of your calving season, how you graze that kind of thing as well? Yeah, we, we're running right now about 110 cows. We're looking to uh, grow that number a little bit more here. Extra land is a little hard to come by. So that's been one of the limiting factors for us uh, in this part of the world. But we, uh, we we calve in March to get everything out of the way. It's it's a busy time for me at work and, and at home, obviously, in, in May and June. So it's not a time that we want to be trying to manage our own calving. And then we uh, we do back around a bunch of our own calves and that as well and kind of put them into the market as, as they're ready. So very simple operation, but we've definitely changed the way we look at our grazing and our winter management uh, definitely over the years. Perfect. Thank you. And can you tell us a bit about your work history at MBFI? When did you start at MBFI and what roles do you play? Yeah, I started in MBFI was spring of 2019, I think it was. And it was a very nice change for me. My previous uh, employment I was, you know, had a lot of travel with it uh, and a lot of responsibility. It was really hard to keep on top of the things that were really important to me at home. Both my job uh, that I was at the time and even with Ag Canada kept me away from home quite a bit more than I would like. And it, it was really starting to impact some of my personal life as well. I, I, I coach curling and it was a nice change for me to get down to a job where I'm, I'm home every night. A little bit over time now and then, but uh, really flexible work options and good staff to work with. So it's been a very uh, enjoyable experience for me. And do you want to share a little bit about kind of some of your duties on the farm at MBFI? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, it's a pretty uh, a low-key role, actually. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of nice for me for a change to get away from a lot of the admin and, and, and the work that I did in previous jobs. Really run equipment and, and uh, work with the cattle as needed and help out with any of the research projects where, uh, where my labor is required to help in that. I'm, I'm kind of the guy, I'm kind of point and shoot. They just tell me what needs to get done and I got to make sure it gets done. It's nice because it's it's a good fit for me at this point in my life, and it's allowed me to spend more time with Dad and Quinn here on the farm and kind of take the farm to where we want to get it going forward. That's awesome. And what aspect of your position at MBFI do you enjoy the most? 
I think actually, you know, getting a chance to see some of the uh, new technologies and, and some of the projects that they get going with the collaborators and stuff. It's always nice, you know, when we were involved with other researchers when I was with Ag Canada, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, you know, working with uh, other disciplines and other researchers is always an opportunity to learn and to grow, expand your knowledge base and, and build your network of knowledge. So yeah, that's what I really enjoy the most is getting to see a few different things that uh, I wouldn't if I wasn't working there. So. Sounds like it's a really good fit for you. Gwen, I have a few questions for you as well. Can you please tell me about your history and background, especially in regards to agriculture? Yeah, for sure. You know, ever since I was little, I was following dad and pop around the farm. And I just kind of fell in love with uh, farming, uh, more so the cattle side. I was not part of the grain farming when dad and papa did it. So after high school, I went into agribusiness at ACC and graduated in about 2017. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the whole egg industry. And I had the opportunity to work at uh, at a grain elevator for about five years. And, and I learned a lot there, you know, met a lot of people and a lot of different ways of farming. And I can kind of bring that back to our own farm and uh, practice going forward. Can you share a little bit about how you and your dad managed the farm with off-farm work as well? Yeah, you know, it's it was pretty tough when dad was traveling a lot and I was up at the elevator. We uh, we were relying on other people more so than ourselves sometimes. And it, it's a tough balance to do. Right now, I think we're managing it a little better. Uh, we're both closer to home. And now that I'm older, I, I can take on more responsibility and we kind of have a good system going. Uh, this year was a learning curve and I think it will be again this 2023. But I think we can kind of figure it out together and it should be should be pretty good. What aspects of the farm do you enjoy the most? And I guess, what are your main roles within the farm? Uh, I think what I enjoy about the farm the most is, uh, you know, passing down from generation to generation. I got to see what great grandpa did. I got to see what papa did. And I'm learning from dad right now. And I think I'm excited to see, you know, hopefully I have kids and, and they see what I, me and dad did. And I get to see what they do. It's not as common anymore. So I think being part of that in the egg industry is, is something to be proud of. We're getting closer to 50-50 on the farm, so I'm trying to take on more responsibility. And as dad gets older and wants to maybe slow down a bit, and, you know, I should try to take on more responsibility, I think it'll be a learning curve. But right now we're, we're trying to split it up 50-50 just to make our lives a little easier. Being able to have something that's been passed down for generations, to me, is so interesting. And the fact that you've had the opportunity to see the generations before you and what they've done on the farm and how they worked on the farm. And then to be a part of that with the hope to pass that on to your children. That's awesome. The one quarter that Quinn owns was actually bought by my great grandfather in 1891. So it's coming up on 132 years here in the family. I, th I forget what date it was. It was June, wasn't it? I forget. Anyways, but yeah, we actually just leveled a fence line there here in the fall with the cat, pushed some dirt that had been blown in for well over a hundred years to bring in some more land for grazing and, and build a fence on some flat ground. And it was kind of neat seeing what was buried underneath there back around the turn of the century and around 1900, 1910, somewhere in there. So, Oh, I bet. Clayton, from your experience working as a beef and forage researcher at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, as well as completing your Nuffield Scholarship and your work at MBFI, what overall trends have you observed in approaches to improving grazing and beef cattle production? Well, definitely the, the shift in grazing management. I mean, it, it was, we used to get, you know, huge tours back in the early 90s uh, coming to see us uh, just transition to rotational grazing. It seemed like a really novel idea at the time, which is kind of hard to believe because it isn't really that long ago. 
but the shift in in grazing practices uh, with the really forward thinking producers. I mean, you know, there's still lots of traditional older style grazing that's out there, but I think that's been the biggest shift and finding ways to keep cattle out of the corral, you know, through most of the winter, if not all the winter has been the two big ones for me and, and the approaches and strategies and, and technology to be able to do that, you know, watching it evolve over those, you know, many years as well um, with, you know, the advent of, of tools with electric fencing and solar water and this and that and everything else is watching that transition happen has been really, really neat to see. And I think we're getting to a good spot and we still got a lot more to learn. There's definitely a lot more technology today than what there was even 20 years ago, but not to mention like a hundred years ago. That change has been huge. Yeah. 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 Barbed wire fence was a big thing a hundred years ago. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you can monitor your water supply from your phone. Pretty amazing. And, you know, uh, there's so much more to come yet. Technology is evolving as fast as you can think about it. It'll be interesting to see in 30 or 50 years from now what is available and what things look like. Yeah. How has work on your farm inspired practices in MBFI's farm operations and project ideas? Well, I think of maybe a few things that we brought, you know, I've been at the grazing game for a long time and, and you know, like I say, brought uh, a lot of experience and uh, observation. And I've been very fortunate to, to develop a, a very extensive, very good network around the world of people that I can reach out to to help me through things. So, you know, we, we've evolved a lot here on the farm. And I think, you know, some of the things that uh, Mary Jane has, has twigged on that, that she thought were good opportunities to try and bring into the management there were. Uh, our current annual grazing, where we you know, we make a small bale, 38, 40 inches high, and leave it in the field where it falls out of the baler and, and then graze them, you know, in the fall and, and early winter. That's been an evolution from, you know, the swath grazing that we started doing research in in about 96 or 97, I think. So that's been our, our evolution in our farm anyways. I think some of the other things that, you know, I, when I got talking to her about, you know, the successes we saw on our farm were looking at bringing crops like faba bean and, and forge pea uh, into uh, what would be a normal green feed mix. And we've had some failures uh, using one or the other. If you have a wet year, the peas kind of don't do well. And you have a dry year, the faba beans don't do well. So our approach here is to always add faba beans and peas when we do uh, add a 50-50 mix to kind of buffer some cheap insurance, depending on which way the year goes. And then, of course, the cover crops. And, and I think one of them, I think she's been quite happy with is has been bringing uh, the tetraploid Italian ryegrass into some of our understory crops and that at the farm and just seeing how well it does and, and what it does to provide quality grazing in the fall, in addition to some of the other multi-species cover crop mixes that, that they've used in projects and for feeding cows. So just a few of the things that I've been working with at the farm and have learned from other experts that in discussions with her, she seemed to think they would be a good fit. The first year we tried faba beans and peas together with an oak crop and we actually doubled our forge yield on a dry year in 20, 2020, I think it was, or 2021, it was dry. I forget which year it was, but made a significant difference in terms of how much feed we got off one field. So I think some of those things have been, I think, beneficial as to how we look at uh, approaching some of the feeding of the beef cattle herd there at the MBFI. That's a huge increase, especially on a dry year, to have that much more forage grown. Yeah, and the literature, you know, going back, I mean, there were goes back quite a ways into the oh, early 2000s, some of the work uh, done out west, that you don't gain necessarily a whole lot of quality by bringing those legumes into a green feed stand. But 
you know, you can cut your fertilizer bill. Um, there's some soil benefits and, you know, it's just, there's, there's lots of other good little things happen without necessarily bringing up your forage quality, but that extra yield when costs are so high these days, that's a, that's a win. Yeah, that would definitely make a, a big difference in the pockets of producers and their, the end of their year at their finances. You alluded to this in the last question a little bit already, but I want to expand on it a bit more. So you brought the idea of using the small diameter bales, dropping them where they're harvested in the field, and then using them for later season grazing and intercrop regrowth to MBFI. Can you please tell me more about why you do this on your farm and how it's been working at MBFI? Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, we, we were one of the earlier groups to do research in swath grazing in Brandon and first group actually to do research trials on moving the grazing up earlier, like actually seeding the swath crop in May and not in June, which was typical for the early stages of that practice and then utilizing it earlier to try and rest our perennial pastures. And one of the, like one of the main goals in our farm here is really to, we, we want to rest our perennial forages from any grazing at all through the critical acclimation period, which is basically the months of September and October. It's at least a six to eight week period around the, that killing frost in, in mid to late October. So we, we use annuals, obviously, to graze in that time. And what we're doing now with the small bales has been just an evolution of that. When I was doing my Nuffield study, I had a number of experts. And when I say experts, I mean really top shelf farmers, extension agents, and, and certainly some leading scientists in their country really strongly suggested I look at, you know, a, a round bale silage or haylage to store that green feed crop that we grow. So we, we store and preserve a green feed crop that is seeded May, and then it's underseeded at the same time with our energy-dense forages or our high sugar species. For two reasons, we, we started making a small bale, and one was to preserve the quality of the forage so it was higher and get, try to get the best gain we could, but also to provide more opportunity to the species in the bottom to grow. So anything laying underneath the swath is obviously not regrowing. So if you can turn that swath into a small bale, you've increased the amount of square feet and acreage uh, on any given field that is, is allowing those crops to grow. And both in the terms that they are very high quality forage. And what we're learning now, uh, working with folks that are taking samples here, our soil improvement is basically off the charts. It's just really hard to believe actually. So uh, every square inch I can have of a high sugar species growing in the fall is really what we want to get to. And uh, the small bales have seemed to work good for us. We, we went away from the individually wrapped haylage and silage bales for a few different reasons. And now we just make a small 38, 40 inch bale with our own baler. Minimum amount of string just to hold the shape. And then we start cutting strings and grazing on September 1. And we've actually still got cows out there now on a, one field that will likely hold us till about, I'm thinking third week in January, Quinn. Yeah, yeah. Probably. So it's stretching our grazing out to uh, the end of January once we get too much snow for our stockpiled perennial forage. Quinn, I have a few questions for you next. Of okay. the practices we've discussed so far, where have you seen the biggest changes on your farm? I think the biggest change is on uh, dad's 20 acre field that he started the annual cover crops with. I remember as a kid, we would always get stuck out there in the trucks and tractors. And every year, you know, I got older and I started to realize we're not getting stuck out there anymore. And I think it's just the way, you know, he learned how to manage and what species to use. And when about 2016, 2017, that's when I started buying into the farm more. And, uh, you know, me and dad talked and I thought it'd be a good idea to try it on my land. And it's about 33 acres now that they're the one that they're in now. Uh, and I just want to see what it can do to that as well. Cause we were having the same issues, you know, bare, bare black patches with white showing up 
there's a lot of salinity patches and you know water would just sit on there for weeks sometimes if we had a real bad rain i think it's kind of cool how uh, the water can disappear so fast and the the soil is just you dig it up and it's really nice soil compared to before when it was just compact and uh nothing would go through it so i think that was probably the biggest change that i've seen and i think it's kind of cool where it's going to go to and you kind of answered this in that question but how are you taking these practices forward is there anything else you want to add to kind of what your plan is i took back the last 50 so acres from the neighbors that uh, were renting off of me uh that's the dirt line that we pushed over we're going to seed that down there this year i guess now and uh, it's going to be a lot easier for our management, maybe that we can rest on other pastures longer. Uh, it'll give us more more time to feed out there in our forages. I think little things like that, we're just trying to trying to think what we can do to stretch it out longer and kind of keep it going. Can you explain kind of what your rotational grazing looks like in the summer months on your operation and what you're aiming for as far as rest period or what you're looking for? for cattle moves and how often you're moving your cattle? We tend to try not to get out on our perennials until late May, even sometimes June 1st, until we know that there's enough growth ahead of us. We have a lot of light soil here. So it's more often than not just a one pass grazing that we'll try to take about 50% of the forage on. Depending on the situation and water supply, which is, I guess, probably where Quinn and I are looking most forward to improving our, our water ability for flexibility we'll be anywhere from a two-day move to about a five just depending on on how we can access things and with both of us working out sometimes it's uh it's just that's what's going to have to happen especially around hay season and stuff like that so and then we're done grazing by september 1st on the perennial and we let them rest through the entire critical period and we won't go back to them until mid to late november usually and try and get as many weeks as we can as long as the snow is not too deep and then we'll go back to our annuals or Sometimes graze stubble or do whatever we, you know, we can in the fall as well. Perfect. Thank you. And Quinn, I had one more question for you. What do you see as future projects on the farm and what do you hope to implement in the future? Yeah, so dad touched on a bit there. Uh, a lot of our dugouts, we started digging one of mine. We're having trouble, you know, on the one quarter, we were running out of water on the dry years and we'd have to switch our management up. And sometimes that wasn't easy on a dry year with my one quarter being very sandy and gravelly. So that is a big one that we were discussing over this winter, trying to figure out a plan with that. Uh, we got started on it and dad also has one that we might look at digging out as well if he takes back some of the land he was renting because we might might need it for grazing or hay in the future. Another one is, you know, trying to, if dad takes back one of the fields from the neighbors that he's renting, we might try to do more annual cover crops to give us more feed over the winter. The less bales we're feeding is better. Uh, sometimes we don't have a lot of hay, so the longer we can stretch things out, the better. Uh, we're just trying to make it better for the two of us now, trying to figure out ways that uh, if someone's not here, how we can manage it by ourselves, or if both of us are here, how can we figure out ways to do it uh, more efficient uh, going into the future? It's a challenge sometimes, but I think we're coming up with some good ideas. We just have to start start seeing them through. Clayton, can you tell me a bit about your experience with Nuffield Canada? Yeah, sure. Um, Nuffield Canada is probably one of the best kept secrets. It's getting more well known now, but uh, around the time that I was looking to do it, it was one of the Canada's best kept secrets in the ag world. I've been very fortunate when I was with Agriculture Agri-Food Canada, we toured a lot of people through our research program. 
And a few different times, we actually had Nuffield scholars from uh, other countries around the world to come look. And it was the first I'd heard about it and got me intrigued a little bit. And when I left Ag Canada, you know, I learned about uh, sugars and plants when I was part of a team that went to Argentina uh, in 2008 to go look at uh, the beef value chain of eight of us from Canada went down there. And I knew there was that sugars was something we'd been missing just in my head. It was like a light bulb moment or an epiphany to me that this was something we'd been overlooking. And, and that kind of got me down that road for a few years. We looked at sugars when I was with Ag Canada, then I left and, and I thought, you know, the only way I'm ever going to learn more about this, because I think there's a lot to it, is to look at, at doing an Uffield scholarship. And I was very fortunate to get chosen in 2012. And that particular year, there's 53 scholars chosen around the world. And, and some of those folks that I got to know when we were together for nine days for professional development training before we went out around the world, they become very good friends and, uh, and very good contacts. And uh, I feel like I'm part of a very special family. The Nuffield experience allowed me to travel to 11 countries. It, it really is a journey as part of a leadership development program is what really Nuffield is, even though you do learn knowledge and bring it back to dispense around the country of origin. And I made more contacts through that. I had a pretty good network around the world as it was. And then around the time I did my Nuffield, I also ended up on the executive of the Canadian Society of Animal Science and served about three or four terms. I'm you know, very, very fortunate that I can call myself a Nuffield scholar. It's a uh, very humbling experience. You're surrounded by a lot of really intelligent people with some really clever ideas and really good understandings of a lot of things. And, and you don't feel adequate being around them sometimes, but uh, something I wouldn't have traded for the world. One of the neatest things I saw was Quinn was featured in an article in a magazine in the European Union as one of four progressive cover crop raisers around the world. And, and one of the other four producers featured was a very good friend of mine from my 2013 cohort. Boy, just to see my son in an article with Jake was, was pretty special. It afforded me the opportunity to learn a phenomenal amount about sugars. And I went in there with a really narrow view and realized it was a much, much bigger picture. And as we moved through it and what we learned at our farm, and as we continue to take samples, you know, we're, we're finding sugar levels in our plants that are higher than what some of these countries that breed plants specifically for it are finding. And the changes to our soil have been like just stellar. We, we see certain soil health metrics, especially around uh, soil structure and microbiology, you know, counts and weights and everything of, of all the organisms in the soil that rival, you know, the best managed cool season perennial forage. Uh, and in some cases, almost even native perennial land that's never been broken. So we're definitely going the right way with them. And without Nuffield Canada putting their, their support and their faith behind me to, uh, to become a scholar, our farm wouldn't be anywhere near it is today. And uh, I can't say enough good about the program. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Nuffield Canada, can you share a little bit about what the process looked like of being chosen as a Nuffield scholar and kind of how you ended up in the pool of applicants, what you had to do to apply, that kind of thing? Oh, sure. You do apply. There's a call every year. They've ex really expanded the program. In fact, Nuffield International now even choose their own scholars. And at my time in the program, it was just kind of an umbrella organization that was kind of just getting off the ground. So each country that has a Nuffield program has their own funding, and depending on that funding, they choose the amount of scholars that they can afford to support. So two things, you need a really strong resume, and you need a really good topic that is probably uh, very timely, hopefully in some respect timeless as well, and something that the industry really needs. On the basis of you know, your resume, your experience, uh, possibly your existing network, and your topic will determine if you get an interview or not. It was a pretty intensive interview. It was an hour and a half of me feeling like I've been run through the ringer. 
the experience itself was worth it uh, alone. And then the year I got chosen, I was uh, really, it was a very special feeling. And then it's just grown. You think the journey ends when you're done your study topic, but it doesn't. So in Canada in particular, the scholars that are chosen will get awarded $15,000 to go toward your international travel. Right now, I don't know the particulars of the program because with COVID and travel and everything may have changed some of the parameters. But when I was chosen, you had to have a minimum 10 weeks of travel and at least six of that had to be out of the country in one stretch. So I ended up with about 17 weeks of travel in uh, 11 countries over about three different stints. That included Canada as well, some, some travel around Canada. But, and then uh, you write a very extensive report on what you learned. You have that report approved and published on the Nuffield Canada and Nuffield International website. And then you're expected to disseminate that information you know, as you're requested to give talks. I've had the privilege of giving many, many presentations since I finished my study in Canada, U.S., and, and about well, six or seven other countries around the world, likely, at this point. So it's been a, a very tremendous experience. It truly is a leadership development program. And anybody that is interested in you know, applying for a Nuffield scholarship can, can reach out to myself or any other Nuffield scholar in their area or across the country. It never hurts to talk to somebody before you sit down to put that first application together. That sounds like an amazing experience. And I will make sure that we add the Nuffield Canada website in the show notes so that listeners can go to that link if they're interested. And we'll also add your contact information into the show notes when we get to that at the end for anybody that's looking for that. You started out by considering the role of energy dense Forbes on beef cattle nutrition. How has the application of these Forbes on your farm changed over the years following the completion of your studies? Yeah, it's actually, to be honest with you, the three anchor crops that we use that we knew were going to be high in sugar, the uh, tetraploid Italian ryegrass, the chicory and the plantain, they're the mainstays still to this day. We had been using Italian ryegrass uh, since I learned about it in Argentina. We started putting it in our understory crop about 2010 or 2011. I learned about chicory in 2013 and seeded it the next year. And I learned about plantain in uh, 2014 and then started it the next year. And actually, the gentleman that introduced me to plantain, he's a leading scientist in, uh, in New Zealand, very well-known expert in the forbs like chicory and plantain. So those parts haven't changed. We've tried a bunch of other different forages in the bottom that really haven't had the bang for the buck that I'd like. Our sugar levels are extremely high on the chicory, the plantain, and the Italian ryegrass. Uh, we measured levels as high as 38.5% you know, in late fall with those species. What we didn't expect was how much sugar we think, especially based on, on conversations I've had with the experts that I know, we're pumping a lot of sugar into the soil, which is feeding improvements in soil structure and the biology down there. Our levels of microbial biomass and activity seem to be very high with any measurement that's being taken to the point of extremely high. And we think that's one of the biggest changes that's going on is, is those living roots um, pumping a lot of liquid carbon or sugar uh, into the soil, feeding all that throughout the growing season. The one change we did make that we do now have a fourth anchor species is Phacelia. And I had learned about it during my travels and had kind of put it aside because it wasn't a very high quality forage unless it was extremely immature. And anybody I talked to didn't really recommend it for what I was trying to do at the time with the questions that I was posing. But when we started realizing how quick the soil was improving, and knowing how good Phacelia was for being 
a colonizer and uh, a soil structure improver through its rooting and everything, we really felt that it needed to be brought into the system. So it, it is in our system now, not so much necessarily for its grazing benefit, obviously, but for what it's doing for our soil. And then the other thing is we've seen, you know, we've had successes and failures using these species. And one of the things that we seem to find is we got a chronically, probably a little bit short of nitrogen in the system. Part of that is because the cattle, I think, have to leave to get water uh, outside those fields and, and they're exporting some of the nutrients off. And part of it is because I think we're growing our organic matter so quickly, a lot of the nitrogen is being held. But this year, we actually introduced three different types of early dormant alfalfa and them at a low population, as well as a low population of warm season native grasses that will be permanently in our annual cropping, cover cropping system in a very low population, but they will be helping to fix nitrogen to supply to the system, as well as some very deep rooting with those native species to try and build carbon at depth. We've had some of the people pulling soil samples here going down to four feet. It looks like we're already building carbon down to that depth, but we, we want to try and see if we can do better. So that's our newest foray uh, into our change with these energy-dense forages or high-sugar species. What we don't know is, is how those plants are going to react in that high-sugar environment, like um, especially the native species that are, you know, are obviously not used to a high-sugar environment in the soil. When we first got into the energy-dense forages and this new strategy, you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to work and Dad wasn't sure how it was going to work, but it worked. And we're hoping we'll have the same success with this trying this new next step in, in our journey on, uh, on trying to build. What we want to try and build is a resilient system, something that is relatively low cost, lots of grazing, keeping cattle out, uh, out of the corral as long as we can, um, producing a you know, really high quality forage so that the farm is, is viable for Quinn 30 years down the road when he's my age. So knowing that input costs and everything else are likely going to keep going up. Both you and Quinn have mentioned some changes that you've seen in your soil. Can you tell me a little bit more about what these changes are and what you're seeing and how this is different than it was in previous years? Sure. You know, visually, we, we're on a Newdale clay loam here on, on the fields that we um, are using the annuals on. Now, all of our light land is seeded down to perennials while the last field will be this, this coming spring. But so it was a very hard, blocky clay. Like Quinn said, there was a lot of salinity issues and, and water movement was was quite poor going through it you'd see about an inch inch and a half a good black top soil and then kind of a gray tight mass now on my old field it's been 13 years in in the system where uh you can dig the full depth of the shovel and come up with nothing but black cottage cheese so we know that that structure is really improved any measurements we've taken with traditional soil tests like organic matter nutrient availability seems to be quite high for whatever reason we seem to be unlocking a lot of calcium and we know that plants like chicory and plantain are real scavengers for both nutrients and water. So we think that they're scavenging unavailable calcium and leaving it behind in a more available form, which again is helping contribute to the improved structure. We've had some more recent studies done looking at, at organic matter increases. And we know that those fields are around 5% organic matter when we started. And depending on the methodology, we're getting numbers right now ranging from 75 to 9% without any fertilizer, added manure, compost, or biology in a bottle or anything like that. So the organic matter is going up. We've had microbial biomass carbon measurements have been taken, which, you know, soil is always in a state of flux, so those numbers are always constantly moving. But at the times when those kind of samples were taken, they were very, very high. We did aggregate stability. And even though there isn't a really good global database of aggregate stability on different types of soils, what little literature I could find on it, 
you know, even though we were in an annual cropping system, we had levels of aggregate size, the macro sizes that, that rivaled uh, cool season perennial forage under really good management. But I think one of the most telling just even recently here, we had a watershed district come in and took some samples. They looked at the surface samples in that with the PLFA, a phospholipid fatty acid test, which is, it's a good, it's a legit test. It, it gives you a very crude, broad strokes grouping of the major different categories of, of your microorganisms in the soil. So it isn't a very exacting test to get down to what's actually in your soil in terms of different species. But your broad strokes, different kinds of gram-positive negative bacteria, your couple different kinds of uh, fungi and, and protozoa and other kind of things in the soil, it's pretty good that way. So it's an accurate test. The number that came back on our old field was staggering. The chart for PLFA starts at about 500 nanograms per gram of soil of mass of microorganisms is considered poor. And the chart continues to go up to about 4,000, which is considered excellent at least in the lab printout that we got anyways, I'm, I got to do a little more digging on PLFA. But the number that came back from our 13-year-old field this past August was 8,900 nanograms per gram of soil. So we were over double what the traditional knowledge would say is excellent. So we know that what we're doing with these high sugar forages is driving the population of the bugs in the soil, which again, we know drives everything else. So it's, uh, that was a real eye-opener. A very pleasant surprise. There's still other things we got to, you know, we're not perfect yet, but we, we see a lot of infiltration, obviously, and, and some other good things going on. But the stuff that I thought was going to take 20 to 25 years, we've seen probably in five. And that made us change the way we looked at things a little bit. And, you know, going forward, I think the more soil samples we can take to try and get some answers is where we need to get to. So to wrap up today, we're going to close out by going back kind of to the bigger picture. And my question is, what do you see as the next big challenges in maintaining forage for livestock on your farm and regionally in the prairies? We're trying to design a resilient uh, model here, grazing model that keeps our costs down. You know, um, input costs keep going up. Uh, some of our inputs we know are non-renewable. So what do we do when those start running out? I'm not talking 10, 15 years down the road. I'm talking 50 to 75 if this farm is going to be viable for who's ever on it then. But even 30 years from now, what Quinn might be facing in terms of cost for some of the inputs and stuff that we want to make sure it's resilient as possible. So optimizing our, our grazing production, our grazing yield and utilization for as low cost as possible, I think is definitely one of the main goals. We know that resting our perennials in the critical acclimation period is paying off big time. But one of the, I think the biggest challenges that I see, winter feeding costs are always going to be high. So the longer we can keep them out of the corral, and on, on, you know, expensive stored feed, uh, the better. But the one that I don't have a great solution for right now is the wind. One of the changes that I've seen over my life is this constant wind. And it used to be windy when it stormed and then the odd day after that. Now we seem to find it, you know, windy all the time. And on our light land, you know, that's really costly in the summertime, peeling moisture uh, out of the soil. You know, we're, we're trying to do a really good job of getting lots of litter down and preserving moisture in the ground, but boy, it's getting evapotranspiration and, and transpiration is, is, is huge with those winds. And then the cost for feeding a cow in the wintertime with the energy requirement that goes up, we you know when a cow's in the wind, if we're trying to keep them out of the corral and out of shelter, you know, where, where are they going to shelter from the wind and try and keep your cost down? Because energy is expensive to feed in the wintertime. And I think that's going to be one of our biggest challenges. And 
that's one of the reasons we're trying to incorporate some native grasses into our annual cropping system and we are also incorporating native grasses into any of our new seeding as well so we're using an orchard grass that we developed in Brandon in our program that's designed for um, grazing tolerance on sand that's doing really really well for us in fact Glenn the, the expert from New Zealand was actually walking our pastures this summer with me and the one of the fields on Quinn's place he said was actually the nicest field of orchard grass in alfalfa that he'd ever stepped his foot in in his life and that was that Killarney orchard grass so it kind of made me feel pretty good so we're using species that we know are going to be resilient but still adding i think some natives in there to get that deep rooting and that drought tolerance that we know you know two and three year droughts are going to be something that we're going to have to deal with going forward they've happened in the past they're going to happen in the future anything to add on that yeah you know weather you know we can't control weather it's a challenge every time uh the past two years it's flooded and it's hurt us a bit in seeding time and you know as we get our numbers up every acre counts so what can we do to manage it better uh you know leaving our bush intact or planting shelter belts maybe as well going forward uh just something to you know help the land and keep the soil healthy the animals healthy and the plants healthy uh, i think it's it's going to be very important for us going forward trying to maintain you know what we have and trying to grow it as well yeah got quinn made a really good point there about the moisture i think one of the other new norms i think we're seeing chantelle you know is is these weather extremes and, and that includes our rainfall events and you know growing up again the, the rain wasn't always steady but it was you know more small smaller storms more frequent you know now we're we're seeing the, the trend for quite a few years now which looks like it could be the norm is it will go you know eight ten twelve weeks without a drop of rain and get a four inch deluge right and we look at agriculture that for the last 50 years or more the focus has been on trying to run water off our land as quick as possible to make every acre count and i think i think we need to reshift our thinking in that i think that we need to we need to focus on trying to build a soil that can take in every single drop of that water as quickly as it can and not have anything run off because if you go 10 or 12 weeks without any significant rainfall event and you catch four inches of rain you'd better want every every drop of that to go down and stay in your land and and be there to feed the plants i think the changes in the weather with wind and water patterns are something that we're paying attention to and I think that we're positioning ourselves well right now with our strategies to to deal with that. But uh, and who knows what future weather changes may bring. We're seeing some more rapid changes in, in you know climate change here just even the last few years, and it might be more dramatic than that. That we may have to sit down and rethink some things even four or five years down the road from now. You brought up some really good points and some very timely and impactful challenges that aren't even really just your farm or just regionally, but seem to be almost globally that like, the weather patterns are changing and there's more of those big weather events that people have to think about now than maybe what they had to think about before. Yeah. And you know what, and I guess I thought about that a little bit, you know, in the past and, and you kind of just, well, we'll deal with the weather as it hits, you know, but that's one of the other things about that Nuffield experience when, when your journey takes you to as many countries as I went to and you get to realize that some in some ways your challenges aren't unique in some ways they are but agriculture has challenges all over the world and what really hit home with me was trying to realize what those challenges really were and strategies for overcoming them and I had some great conversations with people you know boots on the ground farmers and extension agents working with them closely in some of these countries that were trying to address these challenges and find 
you know, both short-term and long-term solutions to them. And that's kind of where we took this approach to our farm now. Okay, well, this isn't just about grazing annuals to not be on our perennials anymore. This is about a whole strategy. It's a whole picture. It's about a resilient approach. If there's listeners who want to get in contact with either of you to get questions answered about maybe some of your practices or your studies or what that Nuffield scholarship looked like, how can they contact you? Best way to get hold of me is, is my uh, email. It's ish at rfnow.com is, our, is my email. And uh, Quinner is, uh, well, Quinner, Q-U-I-N-N-E-R at rfnow.com. We sure like to welcome any conversation. Uh, you know, I learn as much talking from them as, as, as they, you know, they probably end up learning from me. Perfect. And I will make sure, like I said, both of your email addresses are in the show notes so that if listeners didn't catch them, they can go there and get them out of the show notes. And that's all I had for tonight. So thank you both so much for your time and joining me on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge and your experience. This has been great. Thank you very much, Chantel. Thank you. Just wanted to let listeners know that this episode was recorded in January of 2023. I will be taking a short leave from MBFI. And in order for there not to be a disruption to the podcast and the release of regular episodes, we decided to record a few episodes ahead of time and have them ready for you so you could still get the content from us on a regular basis. So if it seems like some of the information or the content is being talked about ahead of time that is now in the past, that is the reason for this. We thank you for your patience on that, and we will begin recording regular episodes again in the summer of 2023. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the Province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.